Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we look at the choices and trade-offs consumers face when considering a switch to renewable energy. Then we will hear about the recently announced Taylor Geospatial Institute and the broader push to advance the geospatial industry in St. Louis. My name is DC Benincasa, and I am again joined by my co-host, Ian Laird. How are you doing this week? I'm doing well. I've almost finished up reading a book that I've been meaning to get through for a while now. Nice. What's it about? It goes through the different stages of evolution in life and the different processes that brains had to evolve. It goes from the mind of a bacteria all the way up to the human mind. Have you read anything recently? I see you're going very intellectual on us. Well, I've gone in a little bit of a different direction. You might like this because you're from Seattle. I'm reading Nirvana drummer and Foo Fighters founder Dave Grohl's memoir. It's jam-packed with great stories about his experiences growing up and with famous musicians, so it's been a great read. Enough book talk, though. You want to get into headlines? Sure. I'll start us off. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, decided to not hand out any fines or citations to Amazon after its Edwardsville warehouse collapsed from a tornado in December, killing six people. The organization found that the company's severe weather policies met federal guidelines, despite some workers not remembering participating in tornado drills prior to the disaster and not knowing where to take cover in an emergency, according to OSHA's investigation. The investigation also stated that workers were warned to take cover 10 minutes before the tornado hit the facility. Structural engineering experts question the warehouse's structural design, but OSHA doesn't evaluate construction integrity. A report from the National Education Association ranked Missouri second to last in average starting salary for teachers last school year. The state had an average starting salary of just above $33,000, coming in ahead of only Montana. Bloomberg reported that teacher pay decreased 4% last school year nationwide. The poor pay has contributed to a teacher shortage across the country and led Missouri Governor Mike Parson to propose a pay increase for teachers. The 2023 budget item was approved in the Senate, but now has an uncertain future as negotiations over the budget continue. In Kansas City, plans were announced to build a 5.5-acre park in the center of downtown over Interstate 670. The $160 million project will cut down on the noise from the interstate and provide a large green space in the center of the city that could serve as a gathering space and potentially improve efforts to implement public transportation programs. To help fund the project, the city plans to apply for $25 million in grants from the U.S. Department of Transportation, which has an unprecedented level of funding. The city will also seek money from the American Rescue Plan Act. Estimates place the economic impact of the park at $490 million for the city, with a $90 million increase to surrounding property values. Kansas City area company Yellow Corporation is facing backlash after it was revealed that the trucking company received a $700 million loan from the Trump administration in 2020. A House subcommittee report released Wednesday revealed that the terms of the loan violated the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. Yellow received 95% of the funds that were apportioned for companies critical to national security. At the time, it was justified due to the company's role in shipping and logistics for the Defense Department, although that claim has been disputed. For our first piece, we took a look at the decision-making process consumers and companies are faced with when considering a switch to renewable energy. That's right. 
As gas prices continue to rise and inflation soars, conversation about being energy self-sufficient and having alternative forms of energy is heating up. You got to do some reporting on this, DC. What are the choices stakeholders are facing? There's a lot to consider, Ian, from figuring out the types of renewable energy products they can afford to weighing short-term costs versus long-term costs. As you mentioned, I got to talk to some of the people involved in the conversation to push for renewable energy adoption. Here is more on that story. Anxiety over climate change causes loss of sleep sometimes. (laughs) Because my daughter, she's down at Rolla, and I am looking at what my generation included is leaving you guys with. And I'm horrified. That's Robin Quinones, one of the many consumers that are looking to pivot to renewable energy as climate change concerns grow. In 2016, Toyota announced its first hybrid version of the RAV4 compact SUV, and Quinones wanted it. There was just one problem. I wanted a hybrid, but they were so expensive I couldn't afford one. Consumers like Quinones that want to go green often have to wait for renewable products' prices to go down before they can afford them. For many people, purchasing decisions have taken on added complexity in recent months with record inflation, high energy prices, and economic volatility. Pandemic-driven supply chain issues have driven up prices, and oil prices have surged amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Energy prices overall are expected to increase more than 50% this year, according to the World Bank Group. As prices soar, it could cause consumers to look at alternative forms of energy, like solar power. Tom O'Connor has been installing solar panels in Columbia homes for a decade. I've been doing it for about 10 years. I did my own uh, house, put half a dozen panels on my house in 2012. And then I'd watched the panel prices come down and, and I was just fascinated by all things solar. As more homeowners and business owners pivot to solar power, it has allowed O'Connor to turn his passion into a business. But when customers come into O'Connor's business, H2OC Engineering, to ask him to install solar panels, he says fighting climate change isn't their only motivation. A lot of people will come, they'll, they'll lead with the whole save the planet, green it up motivation, and then after you talk to them for a while, they're really into the dollars and cents uh, motivation. Short-term costs are a key factor to determine whether a consumer wants to shift to renewable energy or not. Islam El Adaway is a professor of civil engineering at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Since 2020, he's been working to study how economic factors affect renewable energy adoption, specifically solar power. El Adaway's research has shown when installation costs for solar panels increase by $100, it decreases the probability that a consumer will install the panels by up to 65%. El Attaway says a short-term installation cost affects the likelihood of solar adoption more than a long-term cost, such as a utility bill. The impact of how much you will pay immediately has more impact on the decision-making compared to how you're going to save down the road. While installation costs are the biggest determinant for solar adoption in El Attaway's model, he says social messaging about climate change and increasing carbon emissions have the lowest impact. We care about society, but we care more about our own selves. El Attaway's findings fit with worldwide data, too. According to a 2021 global survey from Ernst & Young, more than two-thirds of future energy buyers say reducing cost is the most important factor when deciding to purchase new energy products. The report also stated around half of future energy buyers say reducing environmental impact is most important. 
James Owen is the executive director of Renew Missouri, an advocacy group promoting renewable energy adoption in the state. He says many consumers will need to deal with utility rate increases in the short term during the transition to renewables. But he says increasing energy efficiency to decrease the demand for energy can help offset the cost for consumers. Weatherizing doors, windows, insulation, um, you know, you're having more modern appliances, more modern HVAC systems, heat pumps. And, and that's and then like, look, you know, in some of those cases, like utility companies like giving them away. Um, but I also think financing that so people can afford it is also important. Embracing efficiency measures can help people reduce some of their energy costs. But consumers will have to wait on things beyond their control, like technology improving and markets developing. But in the meantime, Quinones says she will continue to seek out more information about the costs of going green. I don't know what the answers are. I would love to put solar on my house. And the only idea that I've come up with, I haven't pursued it yet, was going to neighbors with solar on their roofs and knocking on the door and saying, have they gotten damaged in storms? Are you happy with it? Where did you get it? Do you trust that company? In our next segment, we'll take a look at an area that's been gaining momentum in St. Louis for years, geospatial science. That's right. St. Louis has been at the forefront of geospatial science research for years and is now beginning to consolidate that individual research into a single collective. Leaders and researchers are hoping to turn St. Louis into the Center for Geospatial Research with a new joint institute. Reporter Skylar Rossi spoke to a few geospatial researchers at the forefront of this effort about what the collaboration means for St. Louis. Last week, business and university leaders announced a new initiative in St. Louis for geospatial research. A new center called the Taylor Geospatial Institute will combine the efforts of eight research institutions in the area. As its name suggests, the project is funded primarily by Andrew Taylor, the executive chairman of rental car giant Enterprise Holdings. An exact figure was not disclosed, but the Taylor family has donated over $1 billion to St. Louis initiatives over the years. One of the Institute's goals is to propel St. Louis into the Global Center for Geospatial Research. The city has long been the home of the Western Headquarters of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA. The federal agency studies geointelligence for the Department of Defense. Momentum for the space has been growing since 2016, when the city won a bid to house the new NGA West campus. The Taylor Geospatial Institute will expand the geo-research beyond national security. Aaron Bobick, the dean of the engineering school at Washington University and a part of the Institute's governing council and research team, says the momentum set by the NGA opens the door to grow the ecosystem more broadly. Um, it, it used to be that geointelligence was a, a very isolated kind of thing, right? They flew their own sensors, they pulled down their own data, they did their own analysis, and they kept their conclusions to themselves. Thank you very much. Um, now, given the proliferation of sensing, you know, uh, satellite-based sensing and other, you know, various kinds of remote sensing, given the proliferation of databases about these kinds of things, there's a much greater need for them to be able to integrate that type of data. And therefore, there's also a greater opportunity for other applications to leverage that type of data. So for St. Louis, because of the priming of the pump, if you will, from the NGA investment, there's an opportunity to really grow that ecosystem more broadly. Geospatial research could solve problems across many spaces, from the obvious geography to agriculture to public health. And the Institute's leaders are hoping that by combining the efforts of the research institutions, the area's applications will be stretched. 
Ambal Shakam, a public health professor at St. Louis University and the acting chair of strategic initiatives for the Institute, emphasizes that the research could have large potential impacts. One of the things I like to tell people is that geospatial is everything, right? So everything we do has a location stamp on it. Um, with our technology and our advancements in technology, we're drowning in data in ways that we've never before in our lives. Um, and so we have lots of questions, first of all, that we should be answering that will change the process in which we live, work and play because we'll know more, we'll feel more, we'll understand more about our environment. And we should be able to create, um, in my lens, it's a healthier and more equitable environment for more people to live within. For instance, one application could be preventing the next pandemic, either among humans or plants and animals. If data can tell people where the virus is clustered, then an outbreak could potentially be stopped in its tracks. You know, what if the next pandemic affected soybeans or affected poultry? How would the United States respond to being able to sort of maintain, say, food security across, across the country? Well, that's a geospatial question for which there are a variety of government agencies interested in making sure we know the answer. The recipe for finding these answers is in collaboration, leaders say. The Institute will be a space for researchers from the eight institutions to work together. The work is also likely to expand into new departments at universities that are currently not thinking through a geospatial lens. What we do in academics is often siloed, right? And I think most most of the world in which we function is siloed. So one of the great opportunities that this institution gives us, um, the establishment of this institute, is um, the charge to partner together and to collaborate and to really have a bigger impact on the work that we do. This opens the door to opportunities such as potential grants that these siloed departments likely wouldn't be eligible for otherwise, Bobik says. Institute leaders are also hoping it will entice top scientists to relocate to the city. Bobek estimates that the Institute will employ a few hundred people, but the impact of the research will likely trickle out. You know, there's a saying that says that uh, uh, research turns money into ideas and innovation turns ideas into money. And so, you know, that, that common thread between them is the ideas, right? So, uh, a research institute can produce just a lot of raw material and ideas that are then ripe for innovation, and that can then have a greater impact on the ecosystem of, of the city. Just how big it will get is yet to be seen, but researchers and leaders say that geospatial research is the next big thing for St. Louis. Now it's time for our words of the week. Ian, what do you have for us first? I've chosen Twitter. Ah, yes. News around the social media platform has dominated headlines for part of this week. Do you care to explain a bit more? As you mentioned, Twitter has received a lot of attention recently, as rumors of a potential sale began to take hold. The sale of the platform was confirmed on Monday, with billionaire Elon Musk purchasing it for $44 billion. Before we get more into the deal, do you want to talk a bit about the history of Twitter? The 16-year-old company has roots in St. Louis, where its founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey was born and raised. The company quickly grew, and according to its last report that mentioned the number of users, in 2019, it has 330 million active users monthly. Back to the deal. What sort of response have we seen to the announcement? There were largely two main groups of responses. 
Musk has described himself as a free speech absolutist, and for those that agree with him, the move is seen as a win. They believe moderation of speech will severely decrease, allowing for much more open discussion on the platform. Dorsey has even come out in support, saying Musk is the singular solution he trusts. And what does the other side think? On the other side are people that are worried the move could lead to a rise in hate speech on Twitter. There's also a worry that Musk's takeover could see the reinstatement of figures that had previously been banned, like former President Donald Trump. Additionally, some people are drawing parallels with Jeff Bezos' purchase of the Washington Post and the potential growth of a trend in which billionaires are purchasing large news and information outlets. Over to you now, DC. I have chosen record. What is that referring to? The Missouri Senate approved a $45.1 billion budget earlier this week, a record high, which is $1.2 billion more than the budget that the House approved. What are some of the main differences between the Senate budget and the House budget? About $2.5 billion for Medicaid has been shifted around, so it is no longer a single budget line as the House had it. More than $200 million would be used to help fund school transportation costs. Another large chunk of money came at the request of Governor Mike Parson. It was proposed that $500 million should be added to the Missouri State Employees Retirement System. The House had originally had it set up as a five-year funding plan. Was there much debate over the budget bills, or was it a fairly smooth process? It was a bit contentious, but not quite to the level that the legislature has seen at times earlier this year. Some conservatives called the bill the end of fiscal conservatism and attempted to stall some spending items, while Democrats accused them of targeting groups that they disliked politically. What's next for the budget? Discussion now moves to a conference committee where members of both the House and Senate will iron out differences between the two budgets. The fiscal year starts in July, but the legislature must have a budget on the governor's desk by May 6th. And with that, we head into our closing thought. Here's James Owen, the renewable energy advocate you heard from earlier, talking about the ways Missouri utility companies have lowered utility costs for customers by increasing energy efficiency. I think the best kind of renewable energy is the energy you don't use. And so if you can reduce the demand of it, and I'm not saying like, oh, shut off a light bulb, you know, shut off the light switch when you leave a room. I'm talking about like the, the programs and the products that we're putting in people's homes and businesses that make it where they have to consume less power. You know, like that's that's energy efficiency. And we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the state giving out rebates and discounts and deals to people to, you know, make their homes more efficient. That, to me, is going to help curb that cost. And that, in my opinion, is better than almost any other form of renewable energy you can do. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing the music for this episode. For my co-host, Ian Laird, assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald, and editors Kelly DeRook, Jack Knowlton, James Marshall, and Wicker Perlis, I'm DC Benincasa. This has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.